1: 18- Lesson. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Ethel Tongahong about her work as the producer and host of the Academic Anties podcast. Welcome to the show, Ethel. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that
0: we're finally able to connect after months of trying to set up a date.
2: (laughs) We have, between the pandemic and both of our work schedules, it has been a, a dedication to get here today, and I'm so thankful that it worked out. Before we dive into talking about your podcast and how it came to be, will you please tell us about yourself? Absolutely. So I am sitting
0: here right now in my uh, home office in Toronto, uh, where I am based, that's Toronto, Ontario in Canada. I am an associate professor of politics at York University. And uh, in terms of kind of you know who I am and what I do, I feel like academia is just a small part of what I do, Uh, and it's taken me a while to understand that academia is just a small part of my life, right? Because all of us in this world oftentimes get ensnared in you know this perception that academia is a calling, and so real life has to just be kept aside. And I've tried to kind of deliberately discenter that, so you know in. terms of kind of who I am. Yes, I'm a professor, but I also do a lot of things that aren't related to academia. So one thing I'm really into these days is boxing, which, you know, I started getting into just last year. Uh, and I also, um, have, uh, two children, uh, age three and six, and I'm also part of a fantastic feminist advocacy, uh, and migrant advocacy community here in Toronto as well. So I put on a lot of hats, uh, um, um, and I think that's just, I don't know, I just want to openly acknowledge that as well, right? Like I'm an academic, but not just an academic. And I think academia is a job. Um, and I don't think it should command more than, more than what's required, right? In terms of our attention. <laughs> yeah.
2: I love that approach. Can you take us back to when you were considering going to college and what led you on your own path? through higher ed? Yeah, I think
0: that's a really interesting question, right? Because I think everyone has different journeys and everyone kind of ended up in this world, uh, you know, either with a straight path. You know, I know people who went from college to graduate education, all the way to getting a job in academia. And I know people who took a more circular route. I think for me, um, academia was never really in the cards. I come from an immigrant family uh and uh you know academia was not one of the professions that people considered right like in terms of kind of my own background um I'm Filipina Canadian I was born in the Philippines but also lived in 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 Hong Kong um and we immigrated to Canada in 1999 and so my parents who are uh immigrants who are you know here to kind of create a better life for me and my brother and for themselves uh, really were prioritizing in terms of kind of trying to encourage me and my brother to consider careers that they understood as being more stable. Right. So, you know um, I was always supposed to go to law school. I was always supposed to kind of think of, you know, a career path that was supposed to be more stable. And uh, you know, so going into college, when I started at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, um, I wasn't really thinking beyond kind of, you know, the imperatives that my parents have put in my head, which is that you've got to, at the end of this degree, have a job that is going to support you financially, right? That you're supposed to kind of come out of this this, this degree um, with a degree of economic stability. But As it happens, that's not kind of what I did. And I think, you know, after taking courses in political science and also in women and gender studies, I realized that there were other things that I was more passionate about and other things that I wanted to do with my life. And so, um, what was funny was I remember being a senior in college, uh, second semester, senior year. I had gotten into a whole bunch of law schools, I had gotten into a whole bunch of graduate programs, Uh, I had applied to master's programs and also law schools, just because I wanted to see what my options were. And right when I was about to decide which path to take, I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't click the acceptance box for law school. I just kind of felt, I, I just don't want to do this, right? Like, I don't want to go to law school. I don't want to be a lawyer. I just want to go to graduate school. And that's kind of what happened. So my parents are always super supportive. And they understood that at this point, or at that point, I needed to, I needed to, Uh, do my master's. And I did. And, um, you know, after I did my master's uh, in in England, um, I decided to take time off. Um, I uh, did this program sponsored by the Canadian government that allowed me to take a paid internship uh, for a human rights organization in India. So I did nonprofit NGO work for a while. um, And after that, you know, I decided, you know what, I actually want to do my PhD. And I want to go, uh, you know, do further research uh, in in my specific area. So I feel like my route into academia was super circular. Uh, Again, I come from an immigrant family where (laughs) economic stability is something that they prioritize. But my parents have been super supportive of the road that I I traveled. Uh, I just know that um, for them, uh, I mean, it's changed now. Academia just Isn't something that they really understood, Um, and so to say that I were to 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 say that I was going to do a PhD in political science, that seemed really perplexing to them, right? Like I remember, even my dad, um, up until recently, uh, would say, "Okay, so when are you going to law school?" Right? Like it's just it's not something that's easily understood, Um, and so I think. Uh, for some of your listeners who have immigrant backgrounds, maybe this is something you can relate to. So it's a little bit harder to kind of justify and to explain to our family what it is that we do as academics uh, because it doesn't kind of fall into um, traditional, conventional career pathways. So that's kind of what got
2: me got me into, into this gig. Yeah. <laughs> your dad's question is interesting because while well, he's asking it perhaps for... Uh, you know, a different reason. It's also a question we ask each other in academia, like, huh, what is that job? And, you know, you go to a conference and someone's specialized in something you didn't even know was a thing. And so even amongst academics, we don't necessarily know what someone else's department does. And for grad students particularly, there's so much that they don't know that's going on. All around them, which is part of why demystifying things and unpacking the hidden curriculum on these podcasts is so important.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant point. I mean, what is it that we do? Like, I mean, we assume that we know what academics do but you're right like it varies by field it varies by by academic culture per country as well right and I think you know even amongst all of us in this world there's such huge variation so like Christina I mean what does a regular day for you look like as a researcher as a professor as an academic and maybe we can compare um, notes and see whether that's the same in terms of my own work right
2: For me as a professor, it was largely adjunct work. So that's a, you know, a precarious uh, thing. And it's something that, you know, academia is hopefully going to address because it's not financially sustainable. As a podcaster, uh, it it doesn't have a typical day. Uh, I'm hearing from publicists and presses, every day. I do wake up to a lot of emails. I do get a lot of books sent to me every week, which is a really exciting part of what I do. And I keep finding out about fields of study I didn't know about, you know, even years after getting my PhD. So that's a a very exciting thing about the podcast is it's broadened my access to other academic knowledge
0: Absolutely. In a, way,
2: in a way that being a full-time professor in my field would, I think, continue to be a deeper dive into things that I'm genuinely passionate about and I love, but it would keep me from knowing as much as I'm starting to find out about the great breadth of academia as a large international uh, think tank.
0: I 100% agree with kind of the different the different demands uh, merited by podcasting and also by academia. So on the one hand, you know, and I also wanted to acknowledge that, you know, this is this is a huge issue in terms of um, the precarity of academia worldwide. Like I think, you know, as 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 an as as a profession, it is simply unsustainable that there is, you know, a huge majority of faculty members who are precarious, right? And I think, you know, that also dictates how people encounter academia, especially at the faculty level as well. Like my situation as someone with tenure, my goodness, with tenure is is vastly different um, from folks without tenure and also folks, uh, more importantly, who are, you know, limited term appointees who have different con. tracks that they have to cobble together to make a living. So I think that's that's something that we need to acknowledge as well. But also what you said about kind of podcasting and your role, exposing you to different norms, different research, but also different approaches to academia. That's also been my experience as well. So as well as being an academic researcher, um, I also do Podcasting. I, I have this podcast called Academic Antis, which has also, as you said, exposed me to to different approaches and different norms and different institutional cultures. And I think that's why it's so great to have these podcasts, um, kind of shining a light on on these different ways of being an academic. That I think you know is very enjoyable and illuminating, and also 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 fun for me to learn about, right? Because I think in academia, without had I not had this podcast, I would have just kind of been in my super narrow world doing research the way political science do research uh, but the podcast has in fact opened my eyes up to to the issues that that different academics from different fields, different different institutions face as well. And I think you know having these conversations are so it's so important. I really think it's important to kind of highlight uh, these diverse experiences as well, but also these these experiences um, also have common threads running across them too, right? So I think that's what's really cool about talking to different academics, uh, learning about differences, but also similarities in people's experiences as well.
2: And so often the similarities are the things that we kept hidden. Yes, that the, there's sort of this. Was I the only one? I think I think this happened to me. I don't think this was supposed to happen at all. If I'd done X, Y, or Z differently, um, can we dive into why you started the academic uh, the academic Annie's podcast? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think
0: academic aunties basically started in March 2020, um, or at least the idea of that started in March 2020. Uh, and if you'll remember, um, you know, actually, no, March 2021, let me wait hang on. Yes, March 2021. 20- I'm getting my years mixed up because of the pandemic. Um, And so March 2021 um, signaled kind of the lowest point in my academic career. Um, I was kind of doing quadruple work shifts. I was doing my my job as a professor, teaching virtually, trying to do research virtually, trying to keep my research agenda together virtually, while also having to take care of preschool-aged children. Um, And so what would happen was I would just kind of work uh, during those brief moments when I could in the middle of childcare. Right. Um, And there were also a lot of different, dare I say, toxic events happening in my own kind of academic institution that really depressed me, that really made me feel that academia is a toxic shithole. Right. (laughs) That really made me think, okay, honestly, academia is not for me. You know, it is, it is full of toxic people, toxic structures that make people toxic. And I just got really depressed, right? And I think the combination of COVID, having to work from home or rather live at work <laughs> during COVID and being in, at that point, a toxic workspace made me feel that I needed to have something else, Right? And so I remember this moment really clearly My partner, uh, Wayne, who is also a producer for the podcast, and I were just chatting in our living room, and we were talking about a friend who uh, was asking me for advice on, um, I think she was asking me, you know, what should I, What? it was was really light. She was asking, like, you know, what should I wear as a professor? Because she had just gotten, like, a tenure track job. And I was like, okay, this is what you do. Um, For me, I'm a big fan of yoga pants that are awesome office pants as well. So, um, I, I, so I, I have a lot of pants from this company called Beta brand, which, you know, I'm not, I don't get paid to show this, right. But they're very comfortable because they're like office pants, but they feel like yoga pants. Anyway. So we just kind of, were texting back and forth me and me and me and my friend Jessica. And at the same time, I was also part of all of these other group chats with mostly women of color academics, just kind of talking to each other about academia and, you know, talking about some of the random encounters we'd have with colleagues or with institutions and these group chats give me life because they kind of function as a way for us to keep each other in check and to keep each other feeling less alone like these group chats are a way for us to be like don't worry it's not you it's the academy or don't worry there's nothing wrong with what you what you what you think this is actually what happened don't let the institution gaslight you and through the course of these kind of Virtual conversations through WhatsApp, even through in-person conversations, my partner was like, "You know, you you and your friends give each other a lot of advice, right? Um, a lot of piece advice, uh, you know, that you give each other. Oftentimes, don't get said in official academic spaces, Like new professor's orientation, for example, doesn't give the type of advice we give each other. And so that's where the idea germinated, right? That's where." he said, why don't you have a podcast where you could just kind of provide a space for predominantly women of color to talk about your experiences at the Academy and to give each other advice. And in fact, the tagline uh, that we use for the podcast, you know, uh, was was basically created in that, you know, living room conversation, right? This tagline being, uh, take care, be kind to yourself and don't be an asshole. <laughs> and that kind of led us to think okay like let's just let's just try this out um and so our very first episode, I had just convened a group of my really, really good friends, my best friends, um, Dr. Nath, Dr. Miriam Borges, who we already have these group chats anyway. We just decided to to tape ourselves, um, you know, uh, on on this recording software. I provided a set of like preliminary questions. The first question being, "Why does academia have so many assholes?" And from there, we taped, and and after that, we just got a really good response. So this long-winded answer is basically to to say that I founded I founded Academic Antes um, in order to build community during a really low point, and in order to kind of create a virtual space for first generation uh, racialized, uh, you know, underrepresented academics to just feel that they can just be, to just feel that they have others who they can talk to, whose experiences might reflect theirs, and it was a way for me to build community during a time when I felt that I was lacking it, and during a time when I was feeling exceedingly pessimistic about academia and feeling that I needed I needed to create my own space, my own community uh, to keep going in this oftentimes toxic world.
2: So depending on where you get your news and who your public health director is, the pandemic may or may not be over. Is this a podcast you're gonna continue after it is over? I mean I think you know
0: it it wasn't just about covid initially like I mean I think you know the experiences that people have with respect to feeling alone, feeling adrift, feeling that they don't have people to talk to. I think this was magnified during covid because of you know um sheltering in place mandates and things like that, but I think even beyond COVID, this is something that we all feel, right, Christina? I mean, do you feel that, (laughs) do you feel alone in academia sometimes, or do your your guests, have they expressed kind of feeling that they need community?
2: There's so much that's expressed off air that I need to hold in confidence. Um, I often wish much of what was expressed off air, people felt the safety and confidence to express on air. So and what I can say speaking for myself is that this podcast has taught me that all the things that I thought were happening to me because I wasn't doing something wrong are universal and the quiet parts need to be said out loud.
0: Mm hmm. 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 Yeah, I really like what you said there. The quiet parts need to be said out loud. Why do you think people are reticent to acknowledge this when the recording button is on, or even beyond this podcast in official spaces? Like, why do academics operate using whisper networks rather than official networks? Like, why are we afraid to speak out?
2: Well, I'll answer, and then I want you to do the same. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think. Um, It's because so many are not, um, tenured. And so as long as you are precariously hired, your social media can be, uh, monitored. Your, uh, public presence can be monitored. And if you've made what's considered a misstep, right, um, it can harm you. And so I think there's a lot of guarding of, um, your professionalism. And the professionalism is set at a cisgendered, heterosexual, white male standard. And so I think the rest of us are concerned how it resonates when we speak a truth that doesn't match a cisgendered, heterosexual, white male perspective on what academia does.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, everything you say, I'm kind of, you can't see me (laughs) because this is an audio recording. I'm nodding along as well. I think, I think it's, it's, it's funny. Academia has never, still doesn't actually include diverse people, diverse bodies. I mean, and I, and by that, I don't mean just kind of, you know, in terms of numbers. It's also in terms of kind of approach, right. It's also in terms of kind of political commitments. Um, I think, you know, just to kind of unpack that a little bit, I think because academia is still predominantly, um, dominated by cis head white men, um, and it's also, um, based on institutions that are actually, and, I'm an activist, so I'll just say this, like, um, are actually bastions for white supremacy, right? Um, it becomes harder to speak truth to power, knowing that power can fight back. And ultimately, you know, if you become too kind of critical, you might be out of a job. You talk about social media surveillance. I mean, that's definitely something that has that has kind of negatively affected academics who assume that because of imperatives of academic freedom, they're allowed to say what they can say. Right. But we know for a fact that that's not the case. Um, you know, one needs to only look at the recent case at the university of Toronto law school, uh, where, uh, you know, one of the hires that they gave uh, as part of their human rights program got rescinded uh, because uh, some of the donors for the institution um, were upset with some of the political statements uh, this new hire was, was being given. So, if you know, this is all documented online uh, under Censure U of T uh, as, as an organization, right? So my point is that you know, there's there's like, on the one hand, there's still kind of power structures that we need to call out, that academic freedom, especially recently, there are limitations to that, because sometimes we assume that we can say whatever we want, that's not necessarily the case, especially for institutions that are beholden to donors, um, and also beholden to, to um, you know, public funding structures that, you know, have sought to limit what we can and cannot say freely. But also what you're speaking to is the fact that, you know, if you are precariously employed... Uh, you don't want to piss off power holders because then they might see you as troublemaker, as a troublemaker, and thus that might jeopardize. Um, you know, your, 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 your professional, your professional standing, and thus you might be put out of a job, right? So there's a confluence of all of these factors, right? Like there's like the structural factors, there's also um, the institutional constraints, and also, you know, the simple fact that because, you know, in academia, we're so reliant on these employment practices that quite frankly, in any other profession would not fly, um, that keeps us compliant As well, right? I oftentimes joke with my friends who aren't in academia that, you know, some of the ways we do things. So, for example, job hires, where we're all kind of put under a cloak of secrecy, right? Um, Where discussions made uh, during the job during the job talk deliberations can't be disclosed to anyone, how that can't fly in other industries as well. So, yeah, I think it's structures, it's institutions, it's practices that make it harder for people to speak truth to power. And that's kind of why I think podcast spaces like this and also academic antis are so crucial in kind of decoding and unpacking um, all of these different um, power discrepancies, Right.
2: You state on your website that in every episode you try to plant seeds for structural transformation. What are some of the seeds that you hope that you've planted?
0: I think for me, um, one thing that I hope listeners um, who, you know, listen to the episodes um, get out of our conversations is that, you know, academia, and I've said this already, is just a job. Right, um, and I know that seems kind of ridiculous for for people who aren't in academia, but I think I can't underscore that enough. I think you know this 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 impression that you know a lot of people have, which is that academia is a calling that you're called to be a researcher, you're called to be an academic. You have to do anything and everything to land that academic job because this is a calling. This is this is this is a passion project, this isn't a regular job, I think that masks a lot of abuse as well. And it also gaslights people into thinking that they have to sacrifice everything in order to appease the demands of the academy, right? And once you recognize that academia is a job, that we are as faculty members, as graduate students, workers who allow the institution to function, that actually helps shift your mindset, right? Where you don't accept... Um, the hundredth service request, right? Where you don't kind of, you know, keep working even as you have COVID or even if you're sick because you want to meet that deadline. Reversing the equation and kind of prioritizing that you're a human being first, and that academia, is, academia is a job that it that where you are is a workplace allows you to then kind of get get freedom away from away from these expectations. Um, so we think. Knowing that, knowing that, you know, you don't have to sacrifice everything to academia, I think can catalyze transformative actions for listeners as well. And I think, I remember, for example, um, one of our episodes uh, with uh, Dr. Robert Diaz at the University of Toronto um, and um, Dr. Marianne Mendoza. Uh, we were talking about the job hunt and talking about you know job searches. And one of the things Dr. Mendoza said that really resonated with a lot of listeners was 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 when she said, "Look, like I, <laughs> as an immigrant woman, as a racialized woman, I'm not going to go to any state." just because there's a job. I actually do have ties in California. I do have family ties. I do have my community here. And this is where I want to live. So no, I'm not going to move wherever there's a job. I want to prioritize my needs, my family's needs and my well-being. And so, you know, I think a lot of listeners emailed me saying, wow, you know, that is so different from what they've been taught in graduate school, which is that you go wherever there's a job, even if you don't know anyone. And so kind of seizing back your power to make these decisions and knowing that you don't have to follow the path that others have said is what's necessary in order to achieve professional success. I think that can be very cathartic as well. And I can cite other examples too, but I think just kind of, Understanding that your journey um, is different from others and understanding that academia is just a job and you need to do what makes sense to you and not what others tell you to do. I think that can kind of catalyze uh, transformative actions.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: And changing the language is so helpful, too. It strikes me that words like chosen, calling, sacrifice are religious-type language. And it's overwhelmingly applied to uh, academics. And so when you switch up the language to... it's a job. Uh, do you want to live there? What are the benefits? What's the salary? And you use different keywords to describe whether or not that's a job to pursue or not. You take away words like vocation and passion and mission, and you put it in more concrete, logical terms. It really offers us a new way of questioning what we should do with our degrees. hmm
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm curious too, Christina, like, so in terms of kind of my own PhD education, uh, so I was a PhD student, I started in 2006. Um, and, you know, I I ended, uh, I finished my degree 2013. Uh, You know, although there were conversations about like non-academic career tracks, right? They were just conversations that were that I almost felt were were conversations people faculty members had reluctantly, right? For them to be successful is not just to be in a research-intensive institution, right? Um, it's also to be a professor, and anything beyond that shows that you failed. I mean, they would never say that, but that's kind of. This kind of the impression that people have. And so if you, for example, had a tenure track job offer um, in a place that you may not want to live in, that you may not have ties to, and you say no to that, that that for some people uh, is a signal that you're not that serious about your your profession as well. And so I think, you know, again, this kind of this kind of is beholden to the notion that there's only one way, one pathway uh, to, to, to follow this calling. And I don't know if, I mean, when you were in graduate school, was this kind of the conversation and the expectations that people had, that there was one way to be successful after your PhD, or were there already kind of people kind of contesting that, that assumption?
2: You know, it was both. It was this understanding that the best of the best would get a tenured professor job. Um, and then there were all the other career paths. It, it wasn't that explicit, but it it's kind of in the air at academia. It's kind of in the water. Um, you have to deliberately seek out information about how to find a different job. And it's really felt that way. There's academic jobs, and then there's a different job. And where would you go on campus to ask for information about that? Who on campus could you meet with to find out if they'd had a different job before they'd come into academia and they still know somebody? It it wasn't, the pathways weren't laid out for you as all equal and information for how to traverse each pathway would be provided to you freely. Just say which path you want and we'll hook you up.
0: Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking back to, I mean, you mentioned who, who do you talk to on campus about, (laughs) about jobs? And I'm like, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever set foot in my graduate institution. I don't think I ever set foot in like a career services office, right? Like, I never really had conversations with folks on how to land a job outside academia. I mean, People would kind of say, oh, yes, so-and-so is now heading this NGO and maybe you could talk to them, but it was never an institutionalized part of kind of professional development, right? Like, (laughs) it just, it wasn't something people talked about. Um, Academia was the be-all and end-all of everything. And, you know, graduate programs were seen as basically uh, to, to, to promote the best and the brightest. And if you're not part of that, then that's not really the fault of academic programs, at least that's the impression I got in terms of my experiences as well.
2: For sure. And it leads many students to wonder if they should finish their degree. Are they in the right place? Should they stay? Should they go? If there are hardly any tenure track jobs, uh, is it worth pursuing a degree when perhaps none of your professors can tell you what you will do with that degree outside of looking for a tenure track job? Um and there are also some environments that are fairly toxic for people. Have you as an academic auntie talked about whether people should stay or go and what markers they need to be looking for to make that decision?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we also have like a a series or a sub not not a series, like a an Ask an Academic Auntie mini episodes as part of the podcast. And one of the episodes talked about Academic toxicity and what do they do when it seems as though, you know, their program, their is not going the way they want it to go, right? And uh, you know, I think a lot of graduate students are faced with that conundrum as well, right? And it's not even just that their PhD is not going where they want it to go, i.e., that their research isn't yielding. Um, you know, the results that they want or is not, is not rewarding anymore, but they're also encountering a lot of toxic crap, right? Like they have abusive supervisors or, you know, they're also recognizing that the graduate student stipend that they have cannot support them and their families, right? That is inadequate to helping them pay rent and also pay for living expenses. Right. Um, and there's also the existential dilemma of, well, why am I doing this? Right. Right. When at the end of the day, I'm not getting support to figure out career pathways outside academia. And those academic jobs that do exist are few and far between. Right. And so I think that's something that we've talked about in the podcast. Obviously, there are no easy answers. Um, And I think one of the things that my fellow aunties and I try to highlight is that, you know, just because you started this path doesn't mean that you don't have to deviate from it, right? So for example, just because speaking of you know the question of what do you do if you have an abusive supervisor, just because you started working with your supervisor like you know a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, doesn't mean that you have to see it through if it's not working for you anymore, right? Um, I think one of the things we emphasize is that ultimately this is your journey. Right. If your supervisory relationship just isn't working and you really can't find any other way uh, to work with your supervisor, if your supervisor's abusive, then you have to kind of care for yourself and walk away and find a new path. Right. And try to get support in doing that. Um, and so I think you know, that applies to a lot of our conversations during the pod as well. Like we want to emphasize that, you know, use your your needs first, put your needs first, right? Um, Don't kind of feel that just because, you know, you've 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 started this journey, you have to pursue it to its logical end. Don't don't assume that there's going to be um, a lot of opportunity cost wasted there. Like, you know, you've got to Think about what you need uh, to make yourself thrive and be happy, right? Academia um, kind of is is the type of profession where recognizing emotions um, for a lot of um, for a lot of uh, departments isn't something that they actually do. if you recognize emotions and your own kind of personal needs, that shows that again you're not serious. And in academic antis, we want to debunk that. Uh, we want to show that you know if you feel that your needs are being aren't being catered to, um, in your academic journey. If you feel unhappy, if you feel that you're depressed constantly, then you have the agency to change things, right? You don't have to follow other people's journeys. You have to chart your own kind of pathway. And I know it's easy for me to kind of say that, um, because, you know, I recognize the tremendous privilege I have, um, as a professor in Toronto, but even I have to admit that, you know, when I see all of these diverse instances of, of toxicity in academia, I also always have one foot out, right? One of our academic aunties, Dr. Yolan Buka, talked about the need to always have a different, different kind of options (laughs) for you, uh, in, in your, in your academic journey. So in other words, you can't just put all of your eggs in one basket. You have to think about plants B, C, and D. And even now with someone with tremendous privilege, someone with a research chairship, and someone uh, with tenure, I also have, you know, (laughs) different eggs in different baskets, because I recognize that, you know, we all have to have, um, you know, different pathways uh, and different kind of escape pods (laughs) uh, to make sure that, that we survive and thrive.
2: You spoke earlier about pandemic parenting and doing your work while your children were right there at home with you. And one of the things that I appreciated about the pandemic was that it laid bare that so many of us have caregiving roles to play that they're very important and crucial to who we are and how we live our life. And they're not something that's supposed to be behind a hidden curtain. They're an integral part of how we consider every day that we set up and, and when we have to be home and what we have to do in our off hours. And it was difficult to hide that over zoom when people in your life might come onto the screen, you know, because you couldn't separate out all the spaces you couldn't separate out all of the roles and it was a huge contrast to me to when I was in grad school, and one of the male professors brought his child, and his child sat in the front row uh, during a lecture, and because I was the grad student assistant, the child sat next to me for me to sort of just make sure the child was okay, you know, while his while his father lectured, um, and. I remember one of the female professors saying to me later, well, he can do that because he's a man. If I do that, I'm a disorganized mother and a disorganized professional. And I wonder what pandemic caregiving things we hope that that academic world will be honest about us caring for, that it's no longer, we, we, we manage our caregiving so seamlessly that it never disturbs a single student or colleague or even makes itself you know visible. We don't have stains on our clothes because somebody spit up as we were leaving the door or what have you. What are your thoughts about that hidden part of the most essential parts of our lives.
0: Yeah, I mean I think one thing that the pandemic has revealed are the inequities that are already uh, endemic in the academy, right? And by these inequities, I mean child care elderly care care work inequities that are disproportionately borne by women by racialized women uh you know uh by by people who are part of you know immigrant communities where there are expectations to provide care uh that are probably more amplified than other kind of non-immigrant communities right and so i think you know i can think of for example um you know maternity leave, right? So in Canada, um, we actually have very generous maternity leave policies and men can avail of that as well. Right. So I have two children and I remember being really upset because when I took my maternity leave, I spent all (laughs) of my leave taking care of my baby, my then baby, right? That's what the leave is for. I, you know, went to doctor's appointments, I breastfed, I did all of the things one had to do uh, in order to sustain life (laughs) for my child. Um, And yet, uh, male colleagues um, who took parental leave, because again, that's an option in in, in Canada, and I'm really grateful for that. I'm not kind of criticizing that policy. Um, But but male colleagues who took parental leave uh, basically admitted that they used that parental leave that time to finish their books. Right. And so even policies that are supposed to even up the playing field are kind of putting women at a disadvantage as well. And I think, you know, again, looking back at the pandemic and how different institutions have tried to adopt to how, for example, tenure track academics just haven't been able to produce as much because, um, you know, the pandemic, You know has obviously impacted the research productivity um how these policies are also kind of being used uh to the disadvantage of women who had to kind of take that extra year in the tenure clock because they've had to take care of children and elderly parents but then they're being compared to um colleagues mostly men who didn't have to take that big of a hit during the pandemic on the research right so i think you know the pandemic has revealed um, so starkly how these inequities um, are so are so pervasive in the academy and how even policies that are meant to resolve these inequities are insufficient, that for the pandemic, tenure clock extensions, while appreciated, might actually put more pressure on, on, on women to produce even more, but in a shorter time period, in order to catch up with their colleagues who also took The tenure clock extensions, but are using this to produce even more. Do you know what I mean? And so then, you know, it it puts us in a situation where we ask, well, what policies institutionally are needed to rectify these gendered imbalances as well. And so I think there are policies that institutions can pass to make sure that, uh, you know, uneven uh, gender distributions are accounted for. I think course releases should be given to, to people who are still recovering from the intensified care needs that they had to face during the pandemic. I also think that there has to be a shift in departmental culture. Um, and when you say, Christina, that, you know, um, it's funny, your, your professor kind of, who was a male prof kind of brought in their kid and you as the graduate student had to take care of their kid on the side, you're definitely right in that women who would do that would just be seen as disorganized mothers. I think, you know, rather than kind of, you know, assuming that, Women will will just go ahead and 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 kind of hide, uh, you know, the care work demands that they have. I think we need to confront that, and we need to make more visible that this is what we've had to to do, or this is what we still have to do in order to to meet our research goals, right? And rather than kind of shaming women, I think we should start also reversing the question and asking, you know, and I'm being a little bit cheeky here, asking men right? who cis had men with with children and with elderly parents. Wait, hold up. Why did you publish, say, 20 articles during the pandemic? Didn't you have children? Were you not taking care of them? So rather than kind of patting them on the back for being productive, we should, I think, start kind of instilling, um, you know, a sense of shame in them. (laughs) Shame in being productive and being like, why were you so productive? Were you not helping your partner out? Right? Were you not doing your your fair share in the household and in and, and taking care of your kids? Um, so I think kind of reversing the gaze and asking different questions um, is one way to kind of reverse uh, gender department cultures and gender norms.
2: I think that it's so complicated. I love uh, the things that you've shared, and I it's it's so complicated to figure out how to level anything out. I'm still thinking about that male professor. And I remember wishing that the female professors could do the same and thinking about how it softened the atmosphere in the classroom that day with the child there. Sometimes the classroom can feel so competitive and so separate from anything that resembles real life and walking in with your child can sort of be hitting a reset button for your students that, Hey, let's remember that we're all, we're all here as people moving towards what betters our life and education is part of that. But being our authentic self is a huge part of that too. And the male professors who use their paternity leave to crank out a bunch of papers how were they missing out on the opportunities to be more responsive to student needs when they were tuning out you know they're getting better at tuning out the needs of those in their own home environment you know i think these questions are so complicated and they they make me sad yeah i think
0: you know you're hinting at the need to reverse expectations too, right? Because I didn't even really think about that. The professors, had white male professors who, you know, don't even think about the caring needs of their own families, much less their students, right? How effective are they in the classroom? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, are they really good teachers then? So are they the teachers who, are they the professors who, you know, require students to supply heaps and heaps and heaps of documentation to prove that their grandparents really died and they couldn't work, to prove that they really went through depression. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I think (laughs) I take a lot of strength from um, care ethicists, right? People who write about um, the ethics of care. And I think if we kind of try to try to see that there are different ways of being and doing, and that there are more humane ways of being and doing that also benefit the cis het white men, right? That also allow them to, to take a step back and enjoy spending time with their children and enjoy spending time with their elderly parents and enjoy being part of community. I think that is one way towards accomplishing different norms in the academy as well. Uh, where we see each other as being embedded in webs of relationships and we don't see each other as being individuals, brains in jars who can produce, 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 produce. Because I think in terms of these gendered expectations, men are men are affected badly too, right? Because there are norms of masculinity that probably compel uh, the cishet white guy to keep churning out papers, Right even though I roll my eyes and think, you know what, you probably could have like slowed down a little bit and helped out your partner more. Um, I think maybe there are different competing pressures um, born out of the myth that, you know, men have to kind of keep producing and keep providing that put people in straight jackets too, that put men in straight jackets too, that constrain their behavior as well. And so I think kind of thinking of new norms, Um, And I think the ethics of care has a lot to give us uh, in terms of this. But thinking of new norms to to create a kinder and and more caring academy is is, is really the way to go.
2: Yeah. As you were sharing that, I was thinking about this other professor who I was just completely worn out. I was in the hallway and I was just completely worn out. And the professor looked at me and he said something like, you know, are you okay? And I said, Well, I'm I'm working three jobs. So I don't know. And he said, Well, do you sleep more than four hours a night? And I said, You know, I try to, and he said, Why? I'm so productive because I made a decision years ago never to sleep more than four hours a night. And then he went in his office and shut the door. And well, I think he thought he had been a role model in some way. He actually did the opposite.
0: I'm so sorry to hear that. And how did that make you
2: feel when he said that? Um, Like I had to hide more of myself as a human being who would need to physically care for herself to stay alive while working three jobs and going to grad school. I wasn't going to be able to forfeit uh, a reasonable amount of sleep and keep up that pace. And he wasn't someone who uh, I thought treated people particularly well. And so I thought, well, all of that is sort of, feeding into each other. It's the, you know, the opposite of what I'm aiming for. And as a professor, you know, one of my concerns for my students has been, you know, how are you? Do you need an extension? How are, you know, I, you've missed some class. I'm reaching out to find out if things are right and how we can, we can get you looped back in. And I think I learned those skills, frankly, because I've done a lot of caregiving. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm kind of thinking that this is kind of why I started Academic aunties as well, to call out these encounters and to say, you know, just because you sleep four hours a night doesn't mean that that's healthy. and doesn't mean that's something we have to aspire to do. Right. Um, and it's also important for us to recognize that I'm sorry, that guy's an asshole, right? Like, <laughs> you know, there's a student there crying because she's exhausted and you kind of use this as a way to kind of make yourself look better by saying, Oh, I made a decision to work four hours a night. Well, shut the fuck up. Right. Like, you know, you have power. You are the professor and this is what you're telling the student, right? That's your human instinct. No, 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 no. You're an asshole. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, uh, I'm sorry for the strong language. I don't know if your other guests curse as much, but no, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I find the podcast so much fun. It's because you can call out bad behavior, right? Like we don't name names, right? But we can, we can call out behavior like that and be like, damn, that, that was a dick move. Right. And then you can laugh about it and take power back by laughing at him. I'm laughing at him. If he's listening, I'm laughing at you. Four hours. Come on, man. Four hours. You know, honestly, are you a robot? Stop it. <laughs> right. And is this, is this your response to a student Come on, man. Come on. I'm so sorry for your wife and your children. Ugh, you're a robot. Anyway, just a little bit of smack talk from my end. But no, like in, in all honesty though, like in all seriousness, um, I think it's important for us to recognize, which is what I've said before at the beginning of this interview, like, academia is just a job. You don't have to sacrifice your sleep, your health, your well being for it. And this is something that I think a lot of academics. Um, especially women especially if people of color have realized during during the pandemic as well they realize as their institutions are being cruel to them um, because they haven't published as much because they haven't been as productive during the pandemic because they want to keep wearing masks for goodness sake when teaching that maybe just maybe there's more to life than having to abide by an institution that doesn't seem to factor in their own their own needs, their own needs as human beings, right? And so I think the Chronicle of Higher Education had an article talking about how uh, the pandemic has has created a wave of what they're calling the great resignation (laughs) among professors in the academy, including tenured professors who were like, you know what, that's it. We are not going to abide by... By these rules anymore. We're not going to spend the rest of our lives trying to chase that elusive goal to be, you know, the most brilliant and most perfect research professor ever, because there's more to life than this. You know, when we die, and, and quite frankly, this is something that I've had to think about a lot as well, considering that a lot of my family members died of COVID <laughs> over the past three years. That's one of the epiphanies yeah, I mean, it's a reality that a lot of racialized communities face. That's something that, you know, led me to this epiphany as well. I don't have to, I don't want to spend the remainder of my time here on Earth uh, you know, losing sleep because I can't meet that deadline that can actually be moved, right? I don't want my kids to think that work is more important. When I die, no one's going to care about how many research grants I have, about how many books I've published. They will care that you're a good human being, they will care that you're if you're present. And so, you know, Christina, this is not how I was even like three years ago, right? I was always chasing the academic gold stars. I wanted the grants, I wanted tenure, I wanted to be, you know, the best professor possible. And I think, The the, the pandemic, but also, you know, ongoing institutional toxicity led me to realize that in order for me to stay in academia, I had to do the work in my own terms, on my own pace, doing the work that I like to do that was meaningful to me, right? And it was also kind of calling out, just with my friends sometimes, or sometimes even in meetings, dickish and asshole-ish behavior, and it's trying as much as I can with whatever power I've amassed to create new institutional norms to ensure that academia is kinder and more caring and more humane.
2: I, My final question again, it was going to be, how can we redefine productivity? But you just did that. Okay. You just <laughs> redefined what, what we would, what we would call productivity, what we would call meaningful productivity. You've, you've, in some of your podcasts, you've devoted time to talking about making making time for joy and bringing joy back into your life. And you've had some where you've talked about movies and you've taken time to dissect and analyze uh, movies. And when I saw those on your, um, your list, I thought, oh, wow, you know, I was discouraged from making time for popular culture, even when it really intersected with my areas of interest. And the way you have opened up what we can do with our platforms with our intellect with our lifetime is so important
0: oh yeah I mean I think honestly I again I I do want to emphasize that I wasn't like this three years ago right like I always assumed that I would just kind of get all the academic gold stars and accomplish all of this and you know, I, I, I did, and I still do, I still love my research, right. I'm still, you know, engaged in, in a whole bunch of different, amazing, uh, and fulfilling research projects, but I'm doing that in my own terms. And I think, you know, that's one thing that I think your listeners, um, if, 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 you know, they, they were thinking about, Oh, well, you know, am I being productive enough? Have I done enough? I mean, I I do want to say that you are enough, you have done enough, that you have to be kind to yourself and that, you know, just because other people, even your mentors, have done things differently doesn't mean that you're inferior because you're carding a different path. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to do things that matter to you, that bring you joy, that you find meaningful. You shouldn't try to feed the academic beast, right? Because you think because you think that that's, that's what you're supposed to do as academics. I think people should should recognize that, you know, they have the autonomy to cart their own paths. And also that, again, this is just a job and that, you know, in our time here on earth, right? <laughs> like, do you really want to to know when you're deathbed that, you know, all the time you spent writing that one article, you could have spent... I don't know, like going on vacation with your family, right? Like what makes us human beings? It's not the articles that we write. It's the moments that we create uh, with our families, with our chosen families, with our loved ones. And it seems kind of silly kind of saying that um, um, to people who aren't academics because they're like, uh, that's kind of weird. (laughs) Like, it's just a job. Why do you feel that you need to say that to, to to your colleagues in academia? And that's because, again, I do want to kind of puncture this notion that, You know academia is a vocation it's a job and hey if you want to take time off uh, tonight uh and not write that paper and not write that abstract not you know have that meeting with your research partners go nuts go watch netflix there are so many fun things to watch on netflix amazon prime go take a walk go do something that feeds you that's fun for you right being an academic is not the be all and end all of your existence
2: I, I agree so much and it's not silly to say any of the things because for many, many listeners, this will be the only place they hear those things. The other voices will be loud and constant and but this will be the only place your podcast, these kinds of conversations will be the only place they hear this. And at some point, every listener needs to know that yes, your mentors are important, your colleagues, your professors are important, but your inner voice, is far more important and nothing should override that.
0: Absolutely. And I think as we're talking, actually, one thing I'm realizing is as I do check-ins with my research team, um, because we start all, I do have like a big research team. We, we start our meetings with checking in, right? We don't dive into the work. We do kind of a, a popcorn style, you know, like, Hey, how are you doing? Let's check in. What's going on with your life? Cause it keeps things fun. And it also allows us to build community but I think one question I'll ask uh during our next team check-in is what fun thing have you done recently right (laughs) because you know you want to you want to make sure that people people also think about having fun people think about you know doing things that give me joy and so I guess I'll kind of ask you Christina do you have anything fun as we wrap up this convo do you have anything fun planned for the rest of the week (laughs)
2: I do. And it's something that I have um, started making a priority to have more fun. And I've found that I am glad that I'm making it a priority. How about you?
0: Yeah, um, I, uh, I, I'm just trying to think, okay, so I, well, what's fun for me is, as I said, I've gotten really into boxing. So I'll probably <laughs> go to the gym a few times and, uh, you know, punch a few things. <laughs> You know, because that's that's a lot of fun for me. Uh, but it also it's the summertime and we've enrolled my eldest daughter in a half day camp. So she's at this biking camp, pedal heads. But I think what will be fun is we ordered a tie dye kit. So we're going to like tie dye a bunch of shirts and dresses. So I think that's fun. Right. So, you know. I, I'm looking forward to that. And I think I'm on sabbatical right now as well. Um, and I'm super, super pleased about that, not only because I get to do projects you know, pay attention to projects that have been kept on the back burner, but also because I get to read for fun. I get to figure out who I am as an academic uh, and what research projects that I actually want to pursue, um, that I'm pursuing, not because the institution tells me to, but that, but that I'm pursuing because I want to do them, right? Um, so I think it's kind of always important to do that gut check and to and, and check to make sure that, hey, am I doing what I want to do? And as you said, listen to that inner voice and also have fun in the process as well.
2: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and telling us about your work and about your work on the Academic Anties podcast and why we need to bring the whispered conversations into a larger sphere and make sure everybody's getting to hear the things that we're keeping quiet too often. Yay, so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Academic Life on NewBooks Network. Please, join us again.
1: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
1: Ah,